Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 18, about Don Ford's Tis Pity She's a Sex Worker. Must remain politically correct. Sophie. <laughs> I... I mean, okay, is that, okay. <laughs> um, now I'm just going, is that actually what it means? Is that what is, I mean, tis a pity she's a sex positive person is a potentially another one in theory. Tis pity she had sex with her brother. That is perhaps the most accurate one. I mean, that is definitely the most accurate one. It, it's, mm, I have so many that things. we don't scare off the audience. This is a podcast where we talk about the plays of William Shakespeare, as well as some of his pals, his influences, his peers, and the people who came after him and responded to him. And this play is responding quite closely to Romeo and Juliet. From what we've said so far, I think you can guess how it's responding to Romeo and Juliet. But Sophie, how about you summarize how it's responding to that? Um, I'm not... Uh, okay, like, for me, I guess it does, it does, cover, it does cover the outside details quite succinctly. Um, so main boy Giovanni, who is meant to be Romeo, um, he has a confidant in a in a friar. Um, the Juliet uh, equivalent Annabella has a um, a very chatty woman person that is not necessarily a witness, but is probably like her maidservant or whatever. Um, they are, I guess, star-crossed lovers. Um, the also there is um a paris equivalent paris almost slash tybalt as well um in that uh what's the dude's name soranzo yes soranzo um they they get married against um annabelle's real deep-hearted wishes although the beyond that beyond that it's not very similar i feel like there's a lot of outside um details that are quite similar but the core being to okay no being in love with each other i guess is mm. also i just want to say tis a pity she's she's a whore is a kind of a comedic title as far as i'm concerned so i was expecting something you know a bit a bit satirish a bit heavy a bit light but tis not, tis not that. It's a bit... Tis a pity it was not a comedy. Ah! The way I like to, uh, to elevate a pitch this play is by saying, you know how Romeo and Juliet was about two families that were too far apart? In this one, the problem is they're too close together. It's the same family, they're brother and sister. I don't like that description at all. <laughs> but Sophie, what is your relationship to John Ford's his pity she's a sex positive lady? I shall assume it's mainly someone, I assume me, telling you that <laughs> this is the one with incest in it. <laughs> I have never had a relationship with John Ford and this play. The closest I'd ever had is 
Romeo and Juliet. Um, I never knew this play existed. Well, okay, no. Um, as listeners know by now, uh, Michael has a um, book club and um, that is also called Shakespeare and Pals. Um, and this was one of them. And it was a vote between this play and another play and the other play won. So I managed to escape reading this until now. I think Much Ado About Nothing won that time. I feel like, wait, I feel like when you put things to a vote, um, it's usually Shakespeare's play, it, it's two Shakespeare plays or two miscellaneous plays. Yeah. I Yes, I suppose that it probably wouldn't have been Much Ado About Nothing. It would have to be something very, very maybe Witch of Edmonton. I think it might have been Witch escaped reading that, mostly because I was sick. And so Witch of Edmonton, also co-written by John Ford. So, there, he, he's done other things. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure he has. I'm, sh I'm sure he has. But this is the first impression I'm getting. So... And my relationship with uh, this play... I, I remember there was one 19th century edition of his works where the editor refused to even name this work. He didn't include it, he refused to even name it. But because of this, I have to name it. I do have to name it throughout this thing. Tis pretty she's a whore. In this podcast, you might have noticed, attentive viewers, that we've tried to tone down our swearing, tried to make this more family-friendly, more classroom-friendly. Sometimes the plays are just not appropriate for children. But they're educational, so you can show them to children according to the Australian government's classifications guideline. Isn't that right, Sophie? <laughs> No, I don't. <laughs> I don't do the lawful research for this stuff. I just, I am just given the plays and I suffer them. That's what I do. But my relationship to this play, I can't remember the first time I heard about it, but it was definitely, I did hear about it like, oh, have you heard of the one where it's, a, it's about a brother and sister? <laughs> That's how I heard about it. I decided to read it. I thought, oh, this is pretty good. And since then, I've read it three times for various levels of obligation and also just of pleasure. I mean, aesthetic pleasure. Artistic pleasure. I'm waiting for your disgusted response, Sophie. <clears throat> My silence is the disgusted response. <laughs> Yeah, so this play is, so my relationship with this play is merely that I've read it a few times. And I feel that that has helped me because the plot is fairly straightforward, but there are a lot of B-plots and subplots, which, in order to get them firmly in your mind, it does take a few readings just to understand that, oh, this character that was introduced here, he's disguised as this character, and he hates this character, and all these characters actually hate each other. Lots of Italian names, lots of rivaling revenge plots in this play. <laughs> yeah, I was actually kind of surprised by that. Um, it's quite full compared to Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo and Juliet also, like, they have a marriage, but they practically die immediately afterwards. While in this one, they live a little bit longer. And they're not necessarily happier for it. 
and quite and quite a, a key plot point is that they need to uh, have nine months between when they consummate themselves and when uh, the tragedy begins. Yeah, I don't like. I did not like that little detail at all. It was not. It was not a good time for me. Have we wet your whistle, listeners? Have we've? This is a very good way to uh, sort to select for an audience because those people who don't like this, who don't like a story of Onisan and Imotos Chan, they have left. I hate you. <laughs> that was awful. I hate you so much. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm going to call this episode, don't you? No. I'm going to call it Onisan colon John Ford's Tis Pity She's a W H asterisk R E. Yeah, or is I? I can't believe my my sister is this cute. Oh yes. I, at least I am. I should not be giving you ideas. A little sister is all you need. No. <laughs> But anyway, let's go into John Ford's biography. Fortunately, for the purposes of time, there's not much we know about his life. That's the thing about these dramatists. They were not important when they were alive. And so people only started looking into their lives a hundred years later, once most of the traces of their lives had faded into oblivion. This is a good thing for this podcast timestamp, not a good thing for any scholars. What we sort of know is that he was born in 1586. Maybe he died in 1639. We don't know. We, we assume that because maybe we don't know if he died in 1639. That's just when all the references to him dry up. Maybe he had a long and happy retirement, as he so deserves, Sophie. Yeah, I guess. I mean, like, okay, I'm not going to judge from one piece of fiction. I don't even want to call it fiction. Literature. I'm not going to judge uh, how important he shouldn't have been or remembered by one piece of literature. But I will say, mm, yeah, maybe. He studied at the Middle Temple, which is primarily for lawyers, but... I remember this from the biography of John Webster, those lawyers, learning places, Middle Temple and such. There was a lot of artistic ferment going on there, lots of dramatists, lots of poets, and you could you know, attend, I assume, lectures on the arts over there as well. So it wasn't just law you were learning. You were learning a wide-ranging humanistic education there, fit for a brilliant dramatist like John Ford. But for the start of his career, he mainly wrote poetry and philosophy. His first play was something we mentioned before. His first play was written in collaboration with William Rowley, Thomas Decker, John Ford, and, quote, etc. This play was The Witch of Edmonton, a play where famously Satan comes in the form of a talking dog. Do you want to do that, Sophie? Does the talking dog get you into this? I mean, is it cute? Is it a cute dog? It's a dog that speaks like a man. And in most productions has to be played by a man in a dog suit. Oh, God. Yeah, no, never mind. I don't want that in my life. We have... There are enough furries on the internet. Sophie, it's the year 2023. Surely we've gotten over our hatred of furries. 
<laughs> have gotten over our hatred, yes, but our fear. That's another well, story. Then how terrible to know that right in this room with you, Sophie, is a furry. <laughs> no! Act one. And I've been trying to tighten up these summaries, so hopefully this won't go on for five minutes. We begin in the Italian city of Parma, as college boy Giovanni is arguing with his priest about whether it's okay to fancy your own sister. The priest says no, Giovanni says yes. A lot of other people fancy Giovanni's sister Annabella as well, because she's very pretty and very rich. The suitors are... The suitors include Grimaldi and Soranzo, and these two suitors get into a scuffle outside the family house. More specifically, Soranzo's servant, Vasquez, gets into a fight with Grimaldi. Annabella, however, has no eyes for anyone but Onisan, and brother and sister confess their love to each other in private. What could go wrong? Did I miss anything, Sophie? No, Act One is pretty succinct, for which I am very thankful. <laughs> you say succinct. What I do love about this play is it feels, just in a plotting standard, very, very modern. In If you read a lot of those screenwriting books or just go online and search up how to write a screenwriting thing, one of the key things you'll get is start late, end early. So don't show us the lead up to the big emotion of the scene. Just give us the only things that are necessary and then just throw us into the action. And in this one, it begins in the middle of an argument. It begins with the friar saying, dispute no more in this, for no young man, these are no school points. Nice philosophy may tolerate unlikely arguments, but heaven admits no jest. We begin not to eat. We haven't heard the argument. We begin right at the end of the argument as the friar is just scandalized. We don't know what he's scandalized about. So already there's a mystery here. But it is. And also we, we go into the, the next scene after this one. It begins right as the fight is breaking out. In Romeo and Juliet, you know, a bunch of servants walking around making dirty jokes and then bit by bit the fight it becomes more and more likely. Now, in this one, it begins with Vasquez and Grimaldi right with swords at each other's necks. So this play is very modern. It's very punchy. Although um, I am, I do like the the build up a little bit, just because you can tell who everyone is. Because I'm just like, wait, Vasquez and Grimaldi are fighting, but they're the servants. So I'm just like, why are I the servants fighting? I think Grimaldi is the noble, but uh, Vasquez is the servant of Soranzo, and Soranzo said I ordered my servant to fight him. Oh, okay. So I think oh, this yeah, is no. meant to give. I think this is meant to give a bit of Soranzo's character, where he is a noble, but he is also sort of a bit of a scumbag. So he's this is about his honor, but he can't be bothered fighting. He says, "I'm going to send my servant to do that for me." Oh yeah, no. Soranzo is a is a bastard. Are we allowed to swear in this episode? Let's try to keep it to a minimum. <laughs> okay. This fine. Soranzo is not a good dude. Is not a good boy. He is, in fact, a bit of a scummy baggy. 
Yeah, yeah, Saranzo is an awful person. I think this is very key because this is a play about incest. It's a play about Giovanni loving his sister and his sister loving him in a sexual manner. I think it is very key to this play that there's no other good choices for her. There's Grimaldi and he's an asshole. There's Berghetto. He's a moron. And there's Saranzo. He is a scumbag who wants to... He can't even be bothered fighting for himself. And also, it seems to be common knowledge in this city that well, Putana knows that Annabella's maidservant. Putana knows that he has previously seduced a married woman called Hippolyta. And so this is common knowledge that he is someone with loose sexual morals. Uh, it is very clear that, and frankly, apart from being incestuous, this play, I think, makes it very clear that Giovanni is a good catch. He's a smart guy. He's a kind guy. At the start, a kind guy. He's a fairly decent sort of fellow, other than the incest. So I, I do like that it's saying that it's sort of pushing the audience to think, hmm, they are sort of right for each other. Yeah, no, it's very much a... If not for that one very key detail, yeah, no, they 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 are lovely for each other. Un until things stop being that way. Why does he do that? Why? I don't understand him. But anyway. When you say he, do you mean John Ford? A little, uh, yes, technically, yes. Um, because, you know, I, have to, I, I need to keep reminding myself that um, these are all fake people. They don't exist. They're just words on a page that I'm, you know, um, uh, what's the word? Imagining. And so they don't have individual psychologies like driving them to do the things they do. So like, I'm just going, John Ford, why did you write Giovanni in such a way that he does the final crime at the very end? I don't understand you and I hate you. Um, I, do, I do find that uh, with this play, the reason why I feel that perhaps Giovanni's movement, his corruption, his fatal flaw, is that is in a sense his rationalism, and I say rationalism in the sense that a debate bro is rationalistic, uh, the kind of person who will say, "If you cannot justify me your life in syllogistic statements, then I will not believe that you deserve to live." That sort of person. Uh, I guess maybe yeah. I, because I would say that it is it is relatively gradual his descent, because he begins as an intelligent college kid. And in a way, this play, it sort of feels like the sort of propaganda you would give to a conservative rural parent saying that, oh, no, you mustn't let your kids go to college because they'll be filled full of liberal ideas and you won't be able to argue with them because their heads are so full of those book words that you can't argue with. But you know what's right, don't you? <laughs> it does feel like that because, you know, he, he is someone... I think it's also very key that at no point in this play does the friar or anyone actually give an argument against incest. The only arguments we hear about incest are Giovanni's arguments in favour of incest. And I think this is sort of meant to be a, a hint that um, either this is a, an I I think that maybe this is pointing to a kind of moral nihilism in the play, which is that either John Ford is saying that you know, we live in a godless, well, not a godless universe, but we live in a universe where morality really has no basis. 
or slightly more conservatively, he's saying that, look, at a certain point, morality has no rational basis. At a certain point, you just have to hope that the other person has a conscience that would tell them that this is wrong. I, you cannot argue with Giovanni. The only way you could convince Giovanni that incest is wrong is if he had already an inbuilt feeling that incest was wrong. But given that he doesn't have that, he can, he's just going to go along with it. And I feel that you know, his problem is that he is the person who is very good at arguing. And he can argue himself into justifying any position. It begins with incest. But as the play goes along, he begins to start, you know, he begins to start justifying increasingly more nihilistic things. Like he says, oh, I think that the moral arguments of the priests are just rods they use to attack children with, to make children scared with. And then eventually he starts saying, I don't even believe in heaven and hell. He, he moves closer and closer to atheism, which at the time would have me meant you were beyond the bounds of all morality. So I feel that his fatal flaw... The thing about him which could technically be a good thing, his intelligence and his rationalism, is what leads him deeper and deeper down into sheer immorality, from incest all the way up into murder. Well, actually then, um, Fryer basically says that in, in, his, first, um, in his first paragraph. Um, Dispute no more in this, for no, young man, these are no school points, nice philosophy, blah, 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 blah. But heaven admits no jest, wits that presumed on wit too much by striving how to prove there was no God with foolish grounds of art, discovered first the nearest way to hell and filled the world with devilish atheism. Such questions, youth, are fond far better. Tis to bless the sun than reason why it shines. Yet he thou talkest of is above the sun. No more. I may not hear it. So, I do. Uh, I want that. I want that to be, you know, how over hell there's abandon all hope you enter here. This speech should be emblazoned over the gates of 4chan. <laughs> Tis filled with this 4chan is filled with devilish atheism. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this this is incredibly relatable. This is the sort of thing you want to say to a lot of people. <laughs> you're, you're you're just. Your arguments are just giving you a shorter and shorter way to hell. Just please stop. I'm begging you, stop. <sighs> Shall we talk about um, Annabella's... I would um, say that first, I want, we, we were talking about how loose the connection is with Romeo and Juliet. I would like to bring up uh john ford's little twist on the what's in a name speech a rose by any other name would smell as sweet about how names don't matter giovanni says shall a peevish sound a customary form from man to man of brother and sister be a bar betwixt me and be a bar twixt perpetual happiness and me so he's used it's just a word brother and sister it's just a word and uh made worse Say that we had one father, say one womb, cursed to my joys, gave both us life and birth. Are we not, therefore, each to other bound so much the more by nature, by the links of blood, of reason, nay, if you will have it, even of religion, to be ever one, one soul, one flesh, one love, one heart, one all. Friar's like, have done, unhappy youth, for thou art lost. It's like, I, I would... 
point out that all his arguments they are sophistry like one point he does he's either being too he's generally being too general too abstract in his arguments like he says am i banned from loving it's like no you're not banned from loving you're banned from loving your sister and he says here look where brother and sister were made in one womb therefore our link is strong okay there are multiple kinds of links in the world you can't there's romantic love there's family love there's friend love these are different loves maybe of a very strong brother and sister link but that's not the same as a romantic link so it is i i assume that by putting these audience the audience who will be watching this i assume um, a number of them i think that this play was mainly for private showings one would hope it was for private showings to an educated audience and part of their education will be how to make these bad arguments and also how to see through bad arguments. So I think the audience will be able to see, oh, I see what he's doing here, this sort of sophistry. It is, mm. So I think that we're meant to be able to automatically see that Giovanni is being a bit sophistic here. Yeah. And, um, and Friar basically just says the same thing over and over you know, just hammering it in, going, this is wrong, you're going to hell, repent. And um, they are both straight as an arrow in in their convictions, except one person is very wrong and the other is, in theory, very correct. I'm not a huge fan of um, uh, Friar's way of encouraging prayer, but also, I guess... Um, things are a little bit desperate you need to go to desperate um measures um he is, he is a person who is own he doesn't he doesn't seem to be that intelligent of a person or at least he doesn't seem to want to engage in any argument his only way of trying to convince people not to do something is to threaten them with hell that's how he tries to convince annabella and i think later on in the play it you know he he does convince her to marry saranzo by saying, oh, in hell you will be, you know, burned to death and all these awful things. And that works on her temporarily. But the, the actual thing that makes her turn against her incest is her conscience coming up in her of its own accord. It has nothing to do with the, with the priest's attempt to make her fear hell. So maybe that's a point that um, when we're having moral arguments, bringing up hell, bringing up punishment, this is in no way a way to cause moral revolution in someone because in that case you're just making them fear a punishment you're not actually making them see what's wrong and that's perhaps the friar's problem For, um i kind of disagree that it's um at least at first anyway it's annabella's morals that um make her turn away from incest it's it's shame um and and it's not even like you know she feels ashamed about the action it's more the shame of being caught and being known by others around her because uh, hell is later hell is after you die and frankly she's young enough that um you know unless she's straight up murdered hell is like decades away it's in the now that she is concerned by and right now she is a disgraced woman um and she needs to get married um so she doesn't give birth out of wedlock like the who she has had the child with is kind of inconsequential for now it's if she is found out on top of that she is afraid of and later 
maybe later she's like okay no actually this was very wrong and i and i we need to we need to repent but in the terms of getting married giving having that shotgun wedding it's to save her earthly self from damnation by others although i do think we are I, i'll accept that we, point as far as it goes but i think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves how about we get to the end of this act yeah no that's fair that's fair um <laughs> shall we talk about um annabella's a um nurse because like i i have i have a mixed feelings about her name oh, and b yes her name is Putana, which is i think italian or spanish it's a romance language term for slut a whore Putana. hmm first of all and second um shall we talk about annabella's uh suitors in more detail uh, yes i'd say that i mean i i've one of my Back to the point of Giovanni being her most eligible suitor, just objectively speaking, apart from sharing a parent. Uh, well, two parents, actually. Uh, the Would it be better if they were half-siblings? Uh, just, like mathematically, really, just mathematically, just mathematically, Sophie. <laughs> uh, in one of my footnotes in my edition, which is the Arden early modern drama, they mention that, you know, she is... The way that we get a lineup of her suitors is that Annabella and Putana, they're in some upper portion of the stage, or I think maybe some balcony. They're looking down and then, oh, Grimaldi comes up. They discuss him. They say, oh, this guy is sucks in this way and that. Then we have Soranzo, oh, this guy sucks in this way and that. Berghetto, oh, this guy sucks in this way and that. Ah, and then Giovanni comes up and, oh, he's so amazing. So that is, according to the footnote, that's a very common type of scene in the in rom-coms or romances where there's an eligible lady and she is looking down at her various suitors and she says don't like that one don't like that one don't like that one ah this is the good one this play is tr is in purely genre terms is trying to fit giovanni and annabella together so they are playing the rather genre conventional roles of lover and lover yeah Ah, so Grimaldi, the soldier, very well-timbered fellow. They say he's a Roman, nephew to the Duke of Montferrato. They say he did good service in the wars against the Milanese. But, but faith, charge, I do not like him, and be for nothing but for being a soldier, not one amongst 20 of your skirmishing captains, but have some privy maim or other that mars their standing upright. So wait, Putana doesn't like him because he might not be good looking because of all his scars from doing good service. And also to... it says others that Mars, they're standing upright. So maybe he's got an injury down there. Mm -hmm. mm. When it comes to Bhutana, we, we, we briefly mentioned her and her name. What, what kind, I mean, it, you could play this in many different ways. I would say that you could play her like the nurse as this sort of moron figure but i'd say that you could also play her as being you know basically intelligent she is as she knows various things about the world it's just that she is a very sex positive lady which at this time period makes her a bit of uh comedically insane uh, <laughs> uh but you know is she intelligent is or is she like the nurse in romeo and juliet um, the or the audiobook that I listened to very much um, 
characterized her as almost shrewd. Um, so it's like, as I am a very woman, I like Senor Sorenzo well. Um, he is wise and what is more rich and what is more than that kind and what is more than all this, a nobleman, such a one where I, the fair Annabella myself, I would wish and pray for. Um, so like for Putana, there is looks, there is um, occupation. I like how they don't even put, um, I can't, I can't remember his name, but um, it's he's not even a, a, a nobleman. He's the servant, but I keep calling him Piggy Boy. Poggio? Yeah. God damn it. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> but yeah, um, she doesn't really even consider Bergetto and Poggio, Poggio, Pudgy Boy, um, because they're not really good enough. Yes, Bergetto and Poggio, these characters are... I, I was almost thinking that, oh, I can just skip these scenes and uh, not mention them. But he, Bergetto does become somewhat of a vital plot point later on. He is the person that Grimaldi kills later on. But on the note of... On the note of Putana being perhaps shrewd, I mean, when it's like in this line, it's like liberal. She's talking about Saranzo, liberal that I know, loving that you know, and man, sure else, he could never have purchased such a good name with Hippolyta, the lusty widow, in her husband's lifetime. And were and twere but for that report, sweetheart, would I would thine. So, you know, she does know that Saranzo is a person who seduces married women. And, you know, she does say that, okay. He, in every way, he is good. But apart from that report of him seducing a married woman, I would say he was a good match for you. So she does seem to have some... She is concerned for the well-being of Annabella. And she does say that, look, probably don't go with this guy because he is, a, you know, a lusty sort of fellow. Yeah, and also... Uh, men in this play have a very skewed idea of morality and i don't like any of them you know none of them are your husbandos sophie no none of them are my husbandos <sighs> but yeah because um like giovanni already we kind of know um his sophistry um like his idea of morality is that as long as i can argue it it's correct um, and also he's very possessive at the end because, you know, it's, uh, but we'll get into that scene later because I'm just going, excuse you. Um, and Soranzo, um, he, <sighs> Hippolyta deserved better. Um, not in act, in this act, but Soranzo is like, hey, I'm not going to marry you, Hippolyta, despite the fact that we promised to, um, because my vow was evil, and therefore I should never keep an evil vow. Exactly! And I'm just like, what? Excuse you? That's not how vows work. You went into that vow knowing that it was uh, evil, I so you should commit it to that evil. I'd it is totally evil. There was a lot of uh, theological and moral debate in the time period where this play was written about whether it was 
whether you were bound to a contract or bound to a vow where you said, I shall do something evil. So there was lots of debate as to whether this vows were binding on people who had vowed to do bad things. I mean, in that case, if you can renege on evil um, contracts, then the devil does not satisfy his job. If you don't want to get caught by the devil, don't do the contract with the devil in the first place, you know? Ah, why am I talking? We have a bit of minutes left. Shall we get into Annabella and Giovanni's uh, little love scene? I say love yes. scene. When they... Yes. Reading this scene, it does feel... It does feel sort of like romantic comedy where, oh, they're a bit tongue-tied around each other. Neither of them wants to make the first move. They don't want to reveal all their cards. Uh, it is endearing. And because it is endearing, it becomes a bit uh, dark because you know the subtext of what's going on. Yeah. And also, um, uh, Anna, when so um, Giovanni enters the stage and Annabella is like, but see, Putana, see, what blessed shape of some celestial creature now appears. What man is he that with which such sad aspect walks careless of himself? Putana, where? Look below. Oh, tis your brother, sweet. Ha! Huh. Tis your brother. Sure, tis not he. This is some woeful thing wrapped up in grief, some shadow of a man. Alas, he beats his breast and wipes his eyes, drowned all in tears. Methinks I hear him sigh. Let's down, Putana, and partake the cause. I know my brother and the love he bears me will not deny me partage in his sadness. My soul is full of heaviness and fear. As it should be, Annabella. <laughs> I think on this note, I do think it is quite important that Giovanni and Annabella... So it's not just that Giovanni loves Annabella. Annabella does love him in a sexual manner. This It is yeah. mutual on both their parts. And I do like one part of it where after they've been, you know, sort of pussyfooting around, one of them putting their foot forward and Giovanni saying, I love you. He's like, of course you love me. I'm your sister. So go, no, I love you like yada, yada, yada. And then it gets closer and closer. And I do like just how little convincing it takes for Annabella to go along with him. I mean, you might, it's where Annabella says, <clears throat> ah, you are my brother, Giovanni. And Giovanni says, You, my sister Annabella, I know this, and could afford you instance why to love so much the more for this, to which intent wise nature first in your creation meant to make you mine, else had been sin and foul to share one beauty to a double soul. Nearness in birth or blood doth but persuade a nearer nearness in affection. I have asked counsel of the Holy Church, who tells me I may love you, and tis just that since I may, I should and will, yes, will, must I now live or die. And Annabella says, live, thou hast won the field and never fought. So it took her very little convincing here. Yeah, very little at all. Ha. Uh... Frankly, as soon as she's like, oh, what's that beautiful being over there that's, you know, crying in grief? And it's just like, oh, no, it's going to be the brother. And Dana's like, oh, that's your brother. And I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> Act two. Giovanni and Annabella have just banged. 
The rich nobleman Saranza, however, thinks he's still got a shot with Annabella because he doesn't know about her little lover. Saranza was writing Annabella some love poetry when Hippolyta barges in. Hippolyta is a married woman who Saranzo had previously seduced and encouraged her to send her husband on a fatal sea voyage. Saranzo wants nothing to do with her, but he enlists Saranzo's servant Vasquez to help her get revenge on Saranzo to kill Saranzo. She offers her fortune and her body to Vasquez in exchange. But surprise, it turns out her dead husband isn't actually dead. Her husband, Ricciardetto, has disguised himself as a doctor and has got himself hired in Giovanni and Annabella's family as the family doctor. And he wants revenge on Hippolyta and Saranzo. Already we're getting the piling on of subplots, Sophie. Did you get that I was sort of straining to keep all the pieces in place there? Yeah, no, there's, like, too many people pretending to be too many other people. It is... Uh, I mean, did I, there was so much stuff there, Sophie. Did, you, did I miss anything? I mean, I don't think so. Yes, Aranzo Hippolyta. Um, no, I think that is it. Shall we talk about Richardetto and his niece Philostra or something? Uh, no, no, it is... Philotus? Richardetto... Ah, Philotus, yes, Philotus. <laughs> so they get introduced as doctors. They So Richardetto is pretending to be the family doctor for Giovanni and Annabella. And later on, it does turn out he has no idea how to be a doctor. And this is actually a key plot point, a rather subtly done plot point, that he doesn't know how to be a doctor. Yes. But, I, mean, what, I will say about this play in general, you know, you hear that this play is the play about incest. And so you think, oh, this is just going to be something a bit edgy. It's not going to be that good. It's the only thing it's going for. It is shock value. I will say that in the many times I've read this, I do find it to be quite a well-plotted play, quite a move it, not moving in an emotional sense, but quite a pulse-pounding, high-momentum thriller with lots of elegantly placed moving pieces in it. It, it, it is good entertainment. Do you... So I know you have a quite large distaste for the subject matter in general, <laughs> but putting aside morality, do you like <laughs> it as a thriller? You know, I do. I actually do. Like, um, and, and also, I just have a lot of distaste for a lot of things. Like anything that vaguely inconveniences me, I just have a lot of distaste for. Um, but yeah, no. Um, I actually didn't get much Richard Etto and Philotus in the audiobook, so it was quite a, um, a, almost a pleasant surprise to um, read them on um, publiclibrary.uk. Um, and, but also because they are a surprise, I actually don't remember that much about them, <laughs> which is a problem. But yeah, um, 
having what was confusing or what was like kind of left field in the audiobook, these people filled in for me. And I was like, okay, I get it now. And um, with even with um, the pieces removed, the core um, story works in the audiobook. But with this um, missing pieces, it's far more intricate. It's like, I guess it's the small cogs that make the watch work. Um, and like with the big cogs, it still works, but it's got a far more smoother, arguably richer, like quality to it because of Richardetto and Philotus and Pudgy and Bedetto. Um, so yeah, no, it's well written. I'm never gonna deny that. <laughs> It's like on the on the note of uh, I was mentioning how modern this place seems in the previous one, how it begins at the height of action in every scene. I do I find that there's actually quite a modern feeling scene transition, where you know in a modern movie how it will be like some character says, "Oh, I don't believe that Spy Man will come here," and then you cut to another scene and you see Spy Man, he's running towards the the building, and so oh, he is coming. In this one, we. We are first introduced to Richardetto, and then Richardetto is the doctor. We don't know anything else about him. We have no reason to suspect him of being anything. Then we get the scene of Hippolyta um, saying, you have betrayed me. I killed my husband because of you. And then she is um, shacking up with Vasquez and saying, we will work together to kill this Saranzo. And then it cuts to scene two, to act two, scene three. And you have Richardetto saying, thou seest my lovely niece, these strange mishaps, how all my fortunes turn to my disgrace, wherein I am but as an onlooker, whilst other act my shame and I am silent. So he, he is going to explicitly mention later on that he is the quote-unquote dead husband. But just by him coming onto stage and saying, thou seest the strange mishaps. And so the audience thinks, oh, that was in the previous scene. Oh, this is the guy that they, he is the husband. So it, it is quite a modern scene transition here. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I and I love Philotus for um, being basically one of the only good people around in this play. Yes. So Richard Dito in scene three is like, I'll tell thee, gentle niece, thy wanton aunt and her lascivious Lascivious? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Lascivious rights lives now secure, thinks I am surely dead in my late journey to Ligorne for you, as I have caused it to be rumoured out. Now would I see with what an impudence she gives scope to her loose adultery and how the common voice allows thereof. Thus far I have prevailed. Thus far I have prevailed. And Flotus is like, Alas, I fear you mean some strange revenge. It's like, Richard Ditto, oh, be not troubled. Your ignorance shall plead for you in all but to our business. It's like, come on. It's like, you'll be fine. You don't know shit. I'm just going to, I'll keep you in ignorance and you'll be fine. It's, it's like way. you also cannot conceive of her issue with this, where he, she is plainly saying, you're going to do something awful. I don't want you to do something awful. And he said, and he thinks that she means, oh, you you don't want to be punished. You're self-interested like I am. But don't worry. You're not culpable for any of this. I'll kill this person and you'll be fine in yourself. Which is very funny. Like, there are some comedic moments in this. Um, and I just wish it had stayed comedic. Because it's just... It's, 
the title is too light for something that is so dark. It is. Uh, I, I do like some of the... The comedy comes from being so flippant about certain things, like here where he's saying, oh, don't worry, you're not going to be implicated in this. And later on, when Bergetto gets killed, he's saying, oh, my God, I'm pissing backwards and forwards because blood is coming out of his front and his back because he's been stabbed through the stomach. <laughs> That's a good joke. <laughs> Terrible. And we, I think we've been speaking enough about Richardetto and Philostra, but we, uh, on the note, well, going back to Romeo and Juliet, I think I noted in that episode that Romeo and Juliet, one of the ways that Shakespeare makes their love not about lust is by actually delaying their consummation. They get married. And then it's only a night or two later where they actually consummate their marriage. They don't do it immediately. But Giovanni and Annabella, it's quite clear, it is quite explicit that they have consummated immediately after that last act. Yeah. Like I, uh, he, Giovanni even goes so far as to try to argue away all chastity. I think this, is, this shows his steady decline. First he justified incest, now he's arguing away every idea of sexual morality of this time period. So he says, he's, I marvel why the chaster of your sex should think this pretty toy called Maidenhead so strange a loss when, being lost, tis nothing, and you are still the same. Annabella is like, tis well for you, now you can talk, and I'm just like, that is exactly the correct response. <laughs> you can talk, but this, is, this was important for me as a woman that lives in society. We are living in a society. But also, I do like how they are, they are being chased to each other. They are being incredibly loyal to each other. And I think later on, let me find out where it is. I, no, I don't think it's in this act. But it's like whenever... Ah, so actually there's one part where they are in a relationship together. And he's basically saying, oh, we will be chased to each other. We will love each other. And then when the friar finds out what's going on, the friar says, nay, then I see thou art too far sold to hell. It lies not in the compass of my prayers to call me back. Yet let me counsel thee, persuade thy sister to some marriage. And Giovanni says, marriage? Why, that's to damn her. That's to prove her greedy of a variety of lust. It's like, oh, no, no, actually it will be chaster for her to stay with me. We are lovers now. If she cheats on me, well, that's the sin. Ah, double standards all over the place. I mean, I got, I'm not sure if it's a double standard because he is, he is also chased to her, up to killing her, for betraying him. <laughs> okay, I suppose it would be a double standard if Saranzo was saying similar things, but like... Yeah, a lot. Actually, Saranzo sort of is saying similar things. Like, oh, she mustn't cheat on me. Of course, I cheated on with that woman. But no, this woman mustn't cheat on me. So he is the one who is that hypocritical double standard lover. Giovanni. Giovanni, he is saying, we are together and we shall be together. Yeah. He kind of is a manipulative about it as well. <laughs> because um, after, and, and in scene one, he says the thing about the maidenhood. And then he says, "By the, you should probably get married, eh? And she's like, what? 
just let me find the scene. Yeah, you must be married, mistress. Annabella, yes. To whom? Someone must have you. You must. Nay, some other. Now, prithee, do not speak so, without jesting. You'll make me weep in earnest. What, you will not? But tell me, sweet, canst thou be dared to swear that thou wilt live to me and to no other? When, frankly, she should get married to someone else just so they can keep their secret for longer. But Giovanni's like, mm, you should get married. And she's like, what? No. And, and he's like, yes, no, exactly. Love only me. He is, very, he is a very possessive. We get more of that possessiveness at the end of uh, Act at the end of Act Two, where it's their Flaudio, their father, is trying to get an, a marriage arranged for her, a good kind of marriage. Uh, oh, this is another thing that's sort of like Romeo and Juliet, where in that one, the Capulet father, the the Lord Capulet, or he only has one daughter left, and the entire hopes of his lineage, the entire hopes of his family, depend on this young. Le depend on his daughter Juliet having a new generation come from her. She needs to be married well. In this one, Giovanni and Annabella, they are his only children, Florio's only children. And unfortunately, they love each other. So whereas in Romeo and Juliet, Capulet's desire to have a next generation was compatible with Romeo and Juliet falling in love. In this one, it's not ex Giovanni and Annabella's love is not compatible with his desire. I mean, it sort of is, but not really. They can have a child. They do have a child, but, you know, not exactly the kind of family tree you want, really. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's very fascinating that it's Florio um, demanding Annabella get married because he's clearly given up on his, on his son. He reads too many books. He's too he much. He's too much of a, a study boy. Which is just incredible. Um, yeah, Exwin Donato, Bergetto and Poggio, into Giovanni. Son, where have you been? What, alone? Alone still? I would not have it so. You must forsake this overbookish humour. Well, your sister hath shook the fool off. The fool being the one of Donato, Bergetto and Poggio. And when it comes to, uh, I think Bergetto gave. Uh, Annabella a ring and so Giovanni sees this ring and Giovanni says whose jewel is that and there's actually and then I think there's a long pause which Annabella says some sweethearts so I think a lusty youth Signor Donado gave it me to wear against my marriage but you shall not wear it send it back to him again what you are jealous that you shall know of none at better leisure Welcome, sweet night. The evening crowns the day. So we get this hint that, okay, this, this loyalty of his is now becoming a bit of a jealous possessiveness of her. And oh, we're going to see how this develops as the play goes on. Uh, insert throwing up noises. But should we talk a bit about Hippolyta? Yeah, sure. I mean, we begin this... So th this scene where she first shows up, it begins with Saranzo, and again, we're getting this idea of Saranzo as this sort of arrogant sort of person, because he is reading poetry. He's reading famous, well-respected love poetry. And what he says is basically that, oh, this poet, he doesn't know anything about love. No, I know something about love. Let me rewrite his poems to be better. 
So already we get the sense that he's a bit of an arrogant sort of uh, Dunning-Kruger sort of arsehole here. Yeah. But then again, an, a lovely bit of stagecraft where he's in this room and then they're screaming from outside where Vasquez saying, no, no, get out, get out. And then Hippolyta barges into the room and starts saying, you awful man, you awful man, you uh, you wooed me and then you left me. And I wonder just how much we're meant to be on her side, because I think in this play, it's, it's fair to say that there's only one or two good characters in it. Uh, every other character is sort of in it for themselves. So I think Hippolyta... She is saying, oh, I am the wronged woman. But I think from what she says, it's quite clear that she is not guiltless in what happened with her and her husband. She did go along with Saranso as well. Yeah. I mean, the doctor man, Richard Etto, he says himself, my wife sent me on that journey that I was meant to die on to get you, my, ne my um, niece. So, yeah, no, Hippolyta is not is definitely not blameless. But also, I think Saranzo is a bit more in the wrong just because he reneged on he reneged on on the deal. Like that's that's the whole point. That's what we're debating here. Yes, he says you are he says who perjured man thou couldst if thou hadst faith or love and Saranzo says you are deceived the vows I made if you remember well were wicked and unlawful. Were more sin to keep them than to break them. And I do like I, about him, it's that throughout this entire thing, he is playing that rather insufferable sort of person where he is saying, oh no, calm down, dear, calm down. A woman comes in and says, you ruined my life. You got, you made me a shameful person, you awful man. It's like, oh, you mustn't be so, uh, so hysterical, dear. Saranzo uh, uh, is a, not a good boy. But on the note of how a key plot point is that Hippolyta says, oh, I want to hurt him, I want to hurt him. Vasquez, can you help me? And this is sort of the main part where we get Vasquez's character, where it seems that he's going to go with her and betray his master. But throughout this, we get Vasquez as being this sort of perversion of loyalty, because he is a diehard loyal follower of Saranzo. He is only going along with Hippolyta so that he can trick her and eventually kill her in the next or fourth act. But the idea is that he is a diehard loyalist, except his master is evil. Uh, he is so loyal, but loyalty is only used to evil ends in this play. <laughs> Soranzo's trying to woo Annabella, but gets interrupted by Annabella's pregnancy sickness. Only Giovanni, Annabella, and Putana know that she's pregnant. So everyone else seems to think the problem is that she's not having enough sex. She needs to get married straight away so that she can have her maiden's blood calmed down by a good seeing to. And who is the most eligible bachelor? Saranzo. The friar puts the fear of hell into Annabella to give up incest and marry this good, non-blood-related boy, Saranzo. In other news, Richardetto's revenge plan accidentally gets Bergetto killed. 
Did I leave anything out, Sophie? No. I don't think I specified... I don't think we ever specified what Richardetto's revenge plan is. I'll briefly summarise it by saying that I think it is that he know he wants to get Soranzo killed and he wants to get Hippolyta killed. He knows that Grimaldi is a very volatile person who is willing to kill some people. And he knows that Grimaldi is against Soranzo because Soranzo also wants Annabella's hand. So he's tr Richardetto tries to set things up so that Grimaldi will be there when Soranzo is walking through the street and so therefore Grimaldi will kill Soranzo. It turns out that he miscalculated and it wasn't Soranzo walking through the street, it was Bergetto, and so Soranzo kills Bergetto. No, no, not Soranzo, Grimaldi kills Bergetto. That is the that is the plan, that is the farce. I I don't think I got that right, or maybe this is just a poorly written plan. I think it's just a very bad plan. Cause um because at least in my mind, if um, as you say, this is like a, a Romeo and Juliet um, through the very warped looking glass. This is meant to be like the Mercutio scene. Where, you know, Mercutio gets killed because two other people are fighting, except, you know, um, it's not an accident. It's deliberate. And the deliberate, but the deliberate act is also an accident um, because... Because, hey, 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 uh, this is all dumb, I guess. I assume that the majority of this was taken out of your audible recording. Oh, yeah, no, this um, um, Ricetto and Felicio just does not exist. Felite um, does not exist. This revenge plot does not exist. Although um, the scene where there's like, hey, this guy's been murdered and um, this guy's um, with the Cardinal. So like, there's going to be no justice um, does happen. So I'm just going, why? Who got murdered? What's happening? Um, and this filled it in. So I guess like there's the whole, um, I guess, subplot um, moral that there is no godly justice on earth only in heaven because humans are corrupt maybe yes it is it is the thing about the cardinal is that that okay so the cardinal himself they could have actually cut out that they could have cut out most of this stuff even the cardinal bits because it's not necessary to the plot in a plot sense it is only necessary in a thematic sense and the reason why the cardinal needs to be shown being very nepotistic and saying i will defend grimaldi from the you know, justice system, is so that at the end, when he comes up and he gives us the title drop of he's looking at Annabella and he's looking at uh, Giovanni's look at the bloodbath in front of him and he says, who could not say, tis pity she's a whore. It's there to make it so that, oh, we know that this guy is an asshole. We know that this guy has no care about justice. That is the only reason you keep in uh, the Cardinal. I assume it's the idea to make the morality of the play slightly more complex because you imagine that some of the audience might be thinking ah well you know what the trouble is women be crazy that or like the problem here was lust but then you have the cardinal who's shown to be a morally vacuous person coming in and he says that he says the problem is lust 
And then the audience is meant to think, oh, well, he says that. And he doesn't care about morality. Maybe I shouldn't think that. Maybe I should think deeper about this. Yeah, probably. But um, no, I... <sighs> Richetto is a dumb boy. Um, Richetto thinks that, you know, it's like, oh, Richard yeah, my wife... Yeah, and Philotis. And Philotis. Philotis is is just is Philotis is fine. She just has bad relatives. Um, but yeah, Richetto like clearly thought that oh my wife tried to kill me. I'm a main character now, and I'm gonna do what a main character does and be clever and um do a revenge plot from the background, like hey, hey, hey. And um no, he 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 did not do that very well at all. He is a silly, I, silly boy. I think, actually, on the note of his revenge plot, I do find it slightly... I find it slightly elegant. Maybe it's not realistic, but it does feel elegant. Where he is the... Uh, he's masquerading as the doctor to this family, and, uh, and Annabella is having lots of pregnancy sickness. Now, Richard Detto, he's not a doctor. He doesn't know what's going on here. So I do like how he deals with that and how John Ford presents it. Let me find the scene. So it is basically she's has pregnancy sickness. And Florio says, and how do you find her, sir? And Richard Detto says, indifferent well. I see no danger. Scarce perceive she's sick. But that she told me she had lately eaten melons. And as she thought, those disagreed with her young stomach. And Florio says, did you give her aught? And Richard Dettis says, an easy surfeit water, nothing else. Uh, you need not doubt her health. So I do like the sort of, it's sort of a bit of a comedy here where you, Richard Detto, he's not a doctor. So you get the sense he's saying, look, I didn't actually expect there to be a medical emergency. Um, she told me she'd eaten melons. Okay, she ate melons. I'll take her word for it. I gave her water. I gave her water to drink. That's not going to hurt her, I don't think. Uh, so it's like he, he is suddenly, he's pretending to be a doctor and suddenly he actually has to treat someone. Ah, but then he says, hmm, how can I work this into my plan? Because he says, her sickness is a fullness of her blood. You understand me? I, I do. You counsel well. And once within these few days, we'll so order it. She shall be married ere she know the time. And so I, and I think it is actually, so Richard Detto is the one who is pushing her to marry Soranzo. And I believe that this is part of his plan where he is thinking, ah, I know Grimaldi. And if there's one, I know that Grimaldi is an angry person willing to get into a fight. If Grimaldi knows that Soranzo is getting married to Annabella, why then I just need to put Grimaldi near Soranzo and Grimaldi will just kill Soranzo. So it's sort of a good plan. I, I, again, I'm sure that a CinemaSense video would say, oh, how would this ever work? But it is for a work of theatre. It is a compelling sort of elegant plan. Yeah, and um, uh, it, because it it feels that way more, especially because immediately in the next scene, um, Grimaldi and uh, Richardetto meet, and he's like, "You are come as I could wish. This very night, Soranzo, tis ordained, must be affied, affied." to Annabella, and for aught I know, married. Grimaldi, how? Yet, yet, your patience, the place, tis fra Bonaventure's cell. Now I would wish you to bestow this night in watching thereabouts, tis but a night. If you miss now, tomorrow, I'll know all. Have you the poison? Well, okay, so people in the audience would be going, um, 
why is he doing this? And then in the next scene happens and then they'll be going, oh. Yeah, I remember something that Roger Ebert said. He's saying, Citizen Kane, Casablanca. Citizen Kane is the better art, but Casablanca is the better entertainment. And I think similarly, Romeo and Juliet, the better art. Tis pity she's of all the better entertainment. Yeah, I can stand by that. Because, and uh, Greg, who was a former host, I was going to call him a guest because that's effectively what he was, Sophie. He was a guest on this show before we found each other. <laughs> At the book club, when we were doing this play, he was quite against the writing style of this play. He even said, I don't think that John Ford is that intelligent. And I, his main reason, I think, was that there's nothing quotable in this play, really. It is, it is not like Shakespeare's language. It doesn't have any of Shakespeare's lyricism where Shakespeare will say, let's stop and linger on an idea and go on for lines about this idea or go on lingering on describing some emotion or some physical thing. And I do feel that that is perhaps an unfair criticism of John Ford because I find the language in this does its job very well. It is a very punchy and very plain kind of language. Of course, when I say plain, it's all relative. No one in day-to-day -day life speaks in poetry. But this does feel like it is more down-to-earth language, a kind of more punchy thriller kind of speech. Yeah, the only quotable... Yeah, yeah, no, they're not. It's not as quotable. Like it's pretty surface level stuff. I can definitely um, point at scenes and point at certain sentences that, um, on second reading, makes me cringe and die inside um, because foreshadowing hurts. Um, I mean, you say it's shallow. It gets across the characters and their emotions and their psychology. So. It's shallow in the sense that, you know, you're not going to find this in the Oxford book of quotations, but it works for what the play is doing as a story. Um, I have no idea. Okay, so, like, Richard Eto, like, he has a nominal plan. Like, it's full of um, holes and potential wrongdoings. But why does he want Philotus to um, woo Bergetto? I have no idea. Maybe it's to make sure that Bergetto doesn't get anywhere near to marrying Annabella so that the only person who could marry Annabella is Soranzo and that therefore Grimaldi will only be directed towards Soranzo to kill Soranzo because uh, Richard Detto has no beef against Bergetto. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. But uh, accidentally, he does get uh, Bergetto killed. Silly, silly man. Shall we talk about Soranzo wooing Annabella? No, not yet. Um, and that's a very interesting scene for me because... Um, so in the screenplay... Um, Giovanni is upstairs um, occasionally, you know making comments, um, Annabella is interacting with him, 
but in the audiobook, he's not in the room. Um, it's just Annabella and Giovanni, not Giovanni, um, Soranzo talking to each other. And it feels a lot more honest this way. Um, it's like she's not putting on an act for her brother. Yeah, no, it feels in, in the audiobook version, Annabella feels more sincere, um, which is a weird thing to be saying. Um, Although I think in the uh, the script, the idea is that she doesn't know that Giovanni is watching. This is just so that Giovanni, Giovanni Annabella thinks she's alone with Saranzo, and Giovanni knows that she thinks she's alone, and so therefore he can take what she says as being genuine, which is why he trusts her a bit more after this. Decide. So yeah, um, and Giovanni, you know, is watching. Saranzo is pouring his heart out with asterisks all over the place and Annabella is you know stonewalling and Annabella says I would like to live and die a maid and Saran's like oh that's unfit Giovanni here's one can say that's but a woman's note did you but see my heart then would you swear Annabella that you were dead Ugh. that's I like, true I, I like ah. this because I, this is a I say a rather well relatively common kind of rejection scene. I think we saw something similar to it in Love's Labour's Lost, another edgy tragedy. Isn't that right, Sophie? Yeah, that <laughs> is odd. Mm. Because these characters, you'll have like the man giving these poetic metaphors and then the way that the woman rebuffs him is just by taking him incredibly literally. So, did you but see my heart and you would swear that you were dead? Yeah. And uh, so what? And then she says, um... Um, So you see these true love's tears? And Annabelle's like, no. And Giovanni says, now she winks. Yes. And I'm just going, you wouldn't wink if you it didn't have someone to wink to. Ah, and then it's like Saranzo says, Mistress, to leave those fruitless stripes of wit, I know I have loved you long and loved you truly. Not hope of what you have or what you are have drawn me on. Then let me not in vain still feel the rigour of your chaste disdain. I'm sick and sick to the heart. And Annabella says, help, aquavite. So it's like, you say you're sick? Okay, get some medicine for you. Do you mock my love, Giovanni? There, sir, she was too nimble. Like, Giovanni's going, oh, my sister's burning you, bruh. Yeah. <laughs> I get the sense here that she is beginning, uh, this is a, maybe an ambiguous point, but she is beginning to think of things outside of her incestuous relationship because she does not entirely rebuff Saranzo. What she says is, to put you out of doubt, my lord, methinks, your common sense should make you understand that if I loved you or desired your love, some way I should have given you better taste. But since you are a nobleman, I would not wish... And actually, so it, it does seem here that she is saying, no, 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 no. And Giovanni is still watching. And Annabelle says, yes, I myself yet... No, let me find actually the, the right line. Um, um, actually, as ever noble courses were your guide, as ever you would have me know you'd love me, let not my father know hereof by you. If I hereafter find that I must marry, it shall be you or none. Yes, yeah, so it does feel that maybe she is thinking, 
maybe I can have something outside of Giovanni. Maybe she's beginning to feel pushing, you know, outward. Again, there is also the the reading of this, which is that the way you can get rid of a man is just to say, look, look, if, if I would love any man, it will be you. But unfortunately, no, I love no one. So therefore, please go away. Uh, she's trying to break him down nicely. Uh, but it could also be that she genuinely means this, that she is already beginning to feel a turn in her heart away from her wicked, incestuous relationship. Just has to be goddamn Saranzo, doesn't it? Just has to be Saranzo. Mm. Okay, that's 20 Give Felite a chance. She's a good girl. When you say Felite a chance, do you mean lesbianism? Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, Sophie, you failed to do your fan fiction of Titus Andronicus. I expect this by the time. <laughs> Fair enough. I can't wait to, to go on to archive of our own and see John Ford's just finishes a whore brackets one. <laughs> Terrible. It's Saranzo and Annabella's wedding day, and Hippolyta tries to crash it. She tries to poison Saranzo, but it turns out Vasquez is a double-double-crosser, and so actually he poisons Hippolyta. Richardetto is a bit happy his wife's dead. The honeymoon is interrupted. When Sarando finds out Annabella is deflowered and pregnant, which makes him a cuck. Vasquez gets Putana to cough up that it was Giovanni who knocked up Annabella. And then Vasquez has a bunch of bandits mutilate Putana and cut out her eyes. Did I miss anything? No. Oh, she. he also threatens to cut off um, her nose, I believe. This is... Uh, I will say that this play, especially in the final act, this is exactly what you hope a decadent Renaissance tragedy would be. There are other ones like the Revengers tragedy, which is just a bit sort of okay. But this one is like, oh yes, there's incest, there's lots of vi violence, just rushing through the walls, there's savagery. This is what you think of. Ah, this is how the Renaissance people do decadent Tarantino violence. Decadent Tarantino violence. Ah, that is a great phrase. Perhaps just to jump to the end, I want to talk about the bandit scene. This is one of those bits which I'm sure that a CinemaSins person would say, oh, did Vasquez just have all those bandits waiting outside? Why would he have all those bandits waiting outside? Uh, but I, I feel that this... It's a very striking scene where, you know, he is saying, tell us who, who knocked her up, tell us. And she says, and Putana eventually admits, it's uh, Giovanni who did it. And then Vasquez just calls in a bunch of bandits and the bandits just crash into the room and stab out her eyes. And it's actually an incredibly, maybe it's not realistic in terms of logistics, but it is an incredibly effective moment. It's, it is almost surreal. It's that, it's that inherently surreal thing about when violence breaks in into a, uh, a domestic setting. 
It's like in the Ian McKellen version of Richard III, where it begins with lots of people just sitting around their little uh, war office chairs. And then a tank just crashes through the wall. It's, and your brain is just telling you, a tank doesn't go through walls. It doesn't belong there. It's that surreal violence here. Yeah, yeah. In that sense, like, um, uh, it is quite effective. Because so far, all the violence has been kind of moralistic violence um, and kind of theoretical. Because it's been about plotting. It's about... Um, Okay, okay, the incest isn't theoretical, but it's more of a moralistic violence in that it's like a crime against God. You're not technically hurting anyone by boinking your sibling. <laughs> I will make that the pull quote on Oni and I. Oni I? <laughs> I, should, I should be able to say that without cracking up. Calm down, Sophie. But yeah, so it's there's no like knives cutting people up. Um, there's lots of talk of poisoning people, and there's a lot of plotting um, and manipulating of people so they will try to hurt each other later. But it's not until really now where you have the actual fruition of those plots, of those schemes, and straight up just having bandits coming out of nowhere. <laughs> and gouging a lady's eyes out. Uh, it's like in Kabuki theater, where you just suddenly see a stagehand come up and stab someone. It's like, oh, it was a ninja. <laughs> so dumb. And do we want to talk about the the wedding? Um, yes and no, because it's pretty, it's pretty bog standard. Um, I mean, I, I would think you'd appreciate how Hippolyta goes about this, where she says, I'm not just going to kill him, I'm going to make it a show. I'm going to come on dancing and then, then spit in the face of his new girl. And then I'm going to give him a poison cup. I do. And, and you know what? I, I genuinely respect that she put effort in baby <laughs> and saranzo he's still in that oh no i'm too calm for this like you have too much engaged us so go away <laughs> uh, but this is where vasquez betrays uh, hippolyta where hippolyta says look i'll leave if you just drink this wine with me let's toast together and i assume she's trying to go for a double suicide here where she drink she drinks it but then vasquez says is that you shall have none neither shall you pledge her and then hippolyta is shocked shocked i say that vasquez How? betrayed her How? <laughs> and it's like there there are two things here which makes her stupid for trusting vasquez one is that either he's a loyal servant in which case he's not going to betray saranzo the other is that he isn't a loyal servant and he betrayed his former master. Okay, well, in that case, why would you trust that he remained faithful to you then? I mean, she he did say, I want to live a comfortable life. 
And she did say, well, I will give you that comfortable life. So let's do it. And also um, by marrying her, he would have had, you know, technically um, higher standing uh, because as a marrying into a noble um, family, um, whether she would have killed him later is another question. It's like, yes, I did give you a comfortable rest of your life. I never promised you a long life afterwards, is what I would have said if I was Hippolyta. Ah, Hippolyta works on genie logic. Yes. And you know what? I think Hippolyta would be that kind of person. Because, you know, she is just so offended by the, the contract being broken. Um, so if it, if she decided, you know what, this contract is not for me, she will fulfill it, but just in a way that is advantageous for her. So yeah, she would have married Vasquez, um, and then she probably would have like immediately killed him, um, with poison, um, on the wedding night. It's that easy. It's that simple. And do we think that, so, you know, she dies and it's revealed what she's done. Do we think that, uh, you maybe she does deserve to be punished for trying to kill some people. But do we think that maybe the other people in this room are taking her punishment a bit too sadistically? Like Vasquez says, die in charity for shame. This thing of malice, this woman had privately corrupted me with promise of marriage under this politic, yada, yada, yada. So he is... So she is di she's already been poisoned. She is dying of poison right now. And he is saying, look at this awful person, this awful person. And then everyone else is like speech tag all. They say, wonderful justice. And Richard Detto says, heaven, thou art righteous. And Florio says, was there so vile a creature? And Richard Detto says, here's the end of lust and pride. So all these characters are just seeing this woman die in front of them. They're saying, yeah, serves her right. I hadn't seen her before, but serves this bitch right yeah the only person who doesn't agree is annabella going it is a fearful sight she she she's seeing herself coming in this general direction isn't she just a little bit just a little bit oh no that could be me next and it is i think this is meant is also just generally meant to show us that this is not a society where goodness really exists even justice is this horrific thing yeah and again, this does show Vasquez. He is a perversion of loyalty. He is loyal to the end, to an evil master, and he will use evil means to his master's ends. He feels oddly like a Disney character. Like an oddly queer-coded Disney um, villain. Well, he's Spanish, after all, and you know what they're like. <laughs> and I just imagine, like, if this was, like, an animated movie... There will be fan fiction of of you know, Saranzo and and Vasquez just making sweet sweet love to each other once you know um, a if a he survived all, all the murder and b after Annabella and Giovanni's dead. I do wonder where would Disney begin in adapting this. <laughs> they, I mean, they'll probably have to make it step brother and sister just to make it legally and morally weird not biologically weird and bad this this summer on the disney channel tis pity she's a tis pity i can't even think of what word they would choose Hussy? Tis, yes tis pity she's a fun loving gal 
She's a bad girl. God damn it. Let's go to scene two with Richard Detto and Philotis. Essentially, he just says, Le leave me to see the end of these extremes. All human worldly courses are uneven. No life is blessed but the way to heaven. Uncle, says Philotus, uncle, shall I resolve to be a nun? Aye, gentle niece, and in your hourly prayers remember me, your poor unhappy uncle. Hi to Cremona now, as fortune leaves. Your home, your cloister, your best friends, your beads, your chaste and single life shall crown your birth. Who dies a virgin lives a saint on earth. Then farewell, world, and worldly thoughts adieu. Welcome, chaste vows, myself I yield to you. What a garbage end for Philotus. She deserved none of this. It's like, well, I've seen what sex does to people. It makes them murderous. <laughs> I mean, yeah, extracting yourself from the, the situation was definitely the correct thing to do. And I hope uh, in this imaginary world where she does in fact exist, when really she does not, uh, on the way she goes, actually, I'll just live a normal life. I don't have to go to, to go be a nun. Scene three. I, I I like how in scene three, like the how Annabella is caught being pregnant is never discussed. Just immediately, Saranzo enter Saranzo unbraced and dragging in Annabella. Come, strumpet, famous whore, were every drop of blood that runs in thy adulterous veins a life the sword don't see it, should in one blow confound them all, harlot rare, notable harlot, that with thy brazen face maintainest thy sin, was there no man in power to be bored to your loose cunning whoredom, else but I? <laughs> the vitriol is extreme. And again, this is you know start late in the scene we don't get any of the lead up to this it is just we've seen the marriage and now bang you whore you i know what you've done it is very compelling and it's like part of me's like but how but how and i just we skipped over that part let's not concern ourselves with that i know but still i i i like the the build-up i'm more of a build-up person maybe he maybe a I, I maybe if I read this line by line, I'll get it. Maybe at this point, he just knows that she doesn't have a hymen, and it's only later when she says directly that you have an heir that he knows she's pregnant. Maybe, maybe. But I do like that we get Annabella. She is not cowed by him. She is not groveling at him. She is not begging for forgiveness. She is even sort of bigging up Giovanni. She doesn't say Giovanni's name, but she's basically just saying, look, I'm not ashamed of what I did. In fact, I hate you for being so abusive to me. She says, soft, sir, twas not my bargain. Yet somewhat, sir, to stay your longing summit, I'm content to acquaint you with the man, the more than man, that got this sprightly boy for tis a boy. That's for your glory, sir. Your heir shall be a son. Damnable monster. Nay, and you will not hear. I'll speak no more. Yes, speak and speak thy last. A match, a match. This noble creature was in every part so angel-like, so glorious, that a woman who had not been but human as was I would have kneeled to him and have begged for love. You 
why you are not worthy once to name his name without true worship, or indeed unless you kneeled to hear another name him. So it is, I do like that they, even in later scenes where she is thrown off her, you know, she has turned her back on incest, it is still very clear that she does love Giovanni in a romantic way. She does still view him as a paragon of men. So it's never about her saying, oh, I was a bit foolish there. I didn't know how I felt, really. I was deceived. No, she does love him. It is just that. And frankly, she still holds that every other man in this world is not as good as Giovanni, as the reader would probably agree. Uh, but she, her movement away from him is purely moral. Yeah. I am curious about Vasquez though, because um he does, because Soranzo decides okay no I'm done I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna be a cuck, um so I'm goodbye Annabella and then Vasquez just swoops in and go now the gods forfend and would you be her executioner and kill her in your rage too oh twere most unmanlike she is your wife what faults have been done by her before she married you were not against you. Alas, poor lady, what hath she committed, which any lady in Italy in the like case would not? Sir, you must be ruled by your reason and not by your fury. What were inhuman and beastly? She shall not live. Come, she must. You would have her confess the authors of her present misfortunes, I warrant you. Tis an inconscionable demand, and she should lose the estimation that I, for my part, hold of her worth, if she had done it. Why, sir, you ought not, of all men living, to know it. Good sir, be reconciled. Alas, good gentlewoman. And Annabella's like, don't beg for my life. I'm I'm down to down to die. Go on, do it. Let him take it. And Soranzo's like, listen, she agrees with me. And Vasquez is like, come on, bro. Yes, and commend her for it. In this, she shows the nobleness of a gallant spread and beshrew my heart, but it becomes her rarely. Sir, in any case, smother your revenge. Leave the sending out your wrongs to me. Be ruled as you respect your honor, or you mar all. Sir, if you ever my service were of any credit with you, be not so violent in your distractions. You are married now. What a triumph might the report of this give to other neglected suitors. Tis as manlike to bear extremities as godlike to forgive. It is so yeah, sad. like, uh, why I, Vasquez is interesting. Is just like very determined to make Soranzo a good boy to outside viewers. He doesn't really care whether Soranzo actually murders Annabella. I think in the he... next act, and I think maybe we keep this for the next act because we're going over time, but in the next act, he is very much, he's sort of like the an evil conscience on Soranzo's shoulder, where he's saying, no, no, you have... Remember, remember your hatred. Kill, kill who, kill Giovanni. Remember your hatred. Don't, don't forget. Don't become too calm. No, you remember what you have to do. So he... He's sort of like an evil conscience sitting on Soranzo's shoulder. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. It's like, you can, it's like, don't kill her out of rage, of unmanly emotional hysteria. Do it cold. Do it with cold reason and nothing else. And it's just like, Vasquez, I don't think that's the point. <laughs> but anyway... Act 5. Annabella sees the light and renounces her incestuous love. 
she breaks it off with Giovanni in a letter, and in that letter reveals they've been discovered by Soranzo. Giovanni gets both the letter and an invitation to Soranzo's house. Giovanni knows it's a trap, but as Rorschach said in Watchmen, he's not going to be locked up in there with them. They're going to be locked up with him. After a final heartfelt meeting with Annabella, he murders her and skewers her heart on his dagger. Soranzo and Vasquez have been planning a bloodbath, but this shocks them. It even shocks Giovanni's father into having a heart attack. Giovanni kills Soranzo and Vasquez kills Giovanni, and then the Cardinal comes in to exile Vasquez and confiscate all the family's property to the church. Did I miss anything? No, it's... You know, for what happens, Act 5 has a lot of scenes. It, it is very snappy, very punchy, very quick. <laughs> Yeah, I don't see why it needs six scenes. It's practically three, if that. But shall we just cut straight to the most famous image of this play? The Giovanni coming in with a, a human heart on his sword. Yep. It is... I, I do like it because... You know, Saranzo and Vasquez, they are there to start a bloodbath. They are already hyped up and ready to be violent. And they're thinking, oh, we're going to be the violent, messed up ones here. There's nothing that can shock us. And then Giovanni does the only thing that could shock them. Which is uh, kill a potentially very pregnant uh, woman, tear open her chest, pluck out her heart with his knife, bring it out like a little shish kebab and go... Hey, this is my sister's heart. And everyone else is going, what are you doing? Are you insane? This is insane. This can't be true. Why don't you check? And they go and they check her very lifeless body in the other room going, oh, God, it's true. And, and then he dies. I mean, he doesn't immediately die. He does He does also go up to Saranzo. And there's that lovely sort of... Uh, uh, Renaissance era thing where he's in the middle of a speech, he stabs someone multiple times. <laughs> and so Saranzo died. And he even like he even wants to rub his own father's face in it by saying that where the father says, What the hell are you doing, man? He's like, This is your daughter's heart. Oh no, you're lying. I had sex with her and she had my child. No, you're lying, you're lying. And then the father is so sh and remember, the father has had no idea any of this is happening. This is the this is literally the first this is I'd say that this is perhaps the worst way you could find out. Yeah, no, the first and worst way of finding out that A, your children have been boinking and one is dead and one is and one was very pregnant at the same time, you know. It's like goddamn. And the father just dies of a heart attack, really. Yeah, that's pretty much the only way to go at this point, I think. If that hadn't killed him, he probably would have jumped off a building because, like, well, why did he not see? Because um, Giovanni brags that they've been at this for nine months, which is just salt in the wound, really. Do we want to perhaps step back a bit and talk about Annabella's coming to the light? 
Sure. Like I have mixed, I have dubious feelings about that, but. I, because she does. So she, she is incredibly uh, regretful of what she's done. So she says, and uh, pleasures farewell and all ye thriftless minutes wherein false joys have spun a weary life. To these my fortunes now I take my leave. Thou precious time that swiftly writest in post over the world to finish up the race of my last fate. Here stay thy restless course and bear to ages that are yet unborn a wretched woeful woman's tragedy. My conscience now stands up against my lust with depositions charactered in guilt and tells me I am lost. Now I confess beauty that clothes the outside of the face is cursed if it be not clothed with grace here like a turtle mewed up in a cage unmated i converse with air and walls and descant on my vile unhappiness so there's two things in there one she is turning she her conscience is coming up but also she says here like a turtle mewed up in a cage so that's the turtle dove and the turtle dove was a strong metaphor of faithful love so even when she is turning against her incestuous love, her lust, she is still stating, no, I do love Giovanni in a romantic way. So, and also there's another thing which separates her from Giovanni because Giovanni, he never regrets what he's done. And both of them, I'd say that both of them, throughout, we haven't mentioned this much, but throughout the play, Giovanni has been constantly mentioning fate. Fate, my fate is my guide. He's sort of positioning himself as a sort of tragic hero that, oh, it's destiny that pushes me on, not my own fault. I couldn't change this. It's fate. It's fate that pushes me forward. Whereas now Annabella, she also starts talking about fate. She says, wouldst thou had been less subject to those, wouldst thou, Giovanni, have been less subject to those stars that luckless reign at my nativity? So it's, it's about fate, but it's about her fate. She is sort of taking this on herself. She is not skirting responsibility here. But let us compare that to how Giovanni talks about fate. This is when he's in her bedroom and, and he's basically just saying, oh, you betrayed me, you betrayed me. He says, why I hold fate clasped in my fist and could command the course of time's eternal motion. Hadst thou been one thought more steady than an ebbing sea? So he's basically saying, look, I fate would have served me. I have fate, but it's your fault. All of this is your fault. Uh, Giovanni is not a good boy. And as I was saying earlier on, this is the, the apotheosis, the, the end point of his rationalist fatal flaw where now he th he's moved from just justifying a few things he wants to do, moving into, at this point, I think, explicit atheism. This, this view that I could have controlled fate. I am a god. Uh, if only people would just understand me. Yeah. The, but, like, for me, I don't... It feels a little dis ingenuous to me just because she's doing this all while she's trapped in a tower basically um so she's currently you know in the upstairs of the stage um and the friar walks in somehow um at the bottom and eventually she's like hey friar 
like I've I've committed some sins and I would like to repent, please. And Friar's like, oh, thank God. Yeah, no, I exactly know what your crimes are because your brother t tells me about them, which makes me very unhappy. But anyway, like, what do you need? What do you want? I I'll give it to you. You're you're gonna you're gonna repent. And and he's like, Annabella is like, commend me to my brother after throwing down a letter. Give him that. Um, bid him read it and repent. Tell him that I, imprisoned in my chamber, barred of all company, even of my guardian, um, Putana, who's dead, um, who, who might be dead, um, have time to blush at what hath passed. Bid him be wise and not believe the friendship of my lord. I fear much more than I can speak. Good father, the place is dangerous and spies are busy. I must break off. You'll do it? Friar, be sure I will, and fly with speed. My blessing ever rest with thee, my daughter. Live to die more blessed. Annabella, thanks to the heavens who have prolonged my breath to this good use. Now I can welcome death. And I'm just going, is she? I suspect that she's very, I suspect that she thinks that she is about to die. Probably killed by her husband because he doesn't want to be cucked. And already he has threatened to do so. And so um, it feels a little bit like, you know, priests that did wrong while they're alive and they're on their deathbed and then they confess their sins in the hope of last ditch effort into going back into um, heaven. Like, it just feels like a, my time has come. I don't want to burn. I will confess my sins. It is also coming from not strictly a selfish um, point because she also doesn't want her brother to burn because as you say like even if she agrees that this was a crime like she still loves him and so doesn't want him to burn either which is too much thinking and feeling than our boy giovanni deserves it's like giovanni again he when when he hears that she's turned her back on the incest he, he, he looks at the friar and says, For heaven, you make some petty devil factor twixt my love and your religion mass sorceries. So he, it can't be that she's merely turned against me. There's some trick, you, you, you evil priest, turning her against incest. When they meet for the final time, um, he war she warns him. Brother, brother, um... Let us not waste these precious hours in vain and useless speech. Alas, these gay attires were not put on, but to some end. This sudden solemn feast was not ordained to right an expense. I that have now been chambered here alone, barred of my guardian or of any else, am not for nothing at an instant free to fresh access. Be not deceived, my brother. This banquet is an harbinger of death to you and me. Resolve yourself it is and be prepared to welcome it. Well then, the schoolmen teach that all of this globe of earth shall be consumed to ashes in a minute. So I have read two? I... But was somewhat strange to see the waters burn. Could I believe this might be true? I could believe as well there might be hell or heaven. And that's when he's, he's like, ah, oh, it's kind of, it'd be weird to watch water burn. Wouldn't be, uh, that just kind of, that kind of weird stuff makes me think that heaven and, and hell doesn't exist. And Annabella's like, oh no. A dream, a dream, else in this other world we should know one another. So we shall, have you heard so for certain, but do you think that I shall see you there? You look on me, may we kiss one another, prate or love, or do as we do here? I know not that. And Giovanni's like, 
Yeah, you know what? I We will say goodbye. Be dark, bright sun, and make this midday night that thy gilt rays may not behold a deed will turn their splendor more sooty than the poets feign their sticks. One other kiss, my sister. What means this? To save thy fame and kill thee in a kiss, stabs her. Thus die and die by me and die by my hand. Revenge is mine, honor doth love, command. Oh, brother, by your hand. When thou art dead, I'll give my reasons for it, for to dispute with thy, even in thy death, most lovely beauty would make me stagger to perform this act, which I must glory in. Forgive him, heaven, and my sins. Farewell, brother, unkind, unkind, mercy, great heaven, oh, oh, dies. Giovanni, you're a bad boy, and I hate you. But she does die with a command. I, I mean, you read it as sort of a, I mean, you, you definitely can read it in that sort of, oh, forgive him, heaven and me, my sins. You could also perhaps read it as, forgive him, heaven and my sins. Farewell, brother. Unkind, unkind, mercy, great heaven. Oh, oh. There could be, you can present her as being strong to the end, like saying, I know what is right and I am going to take the the moral uh, position of just saying that, no, I know we've done wrong. But forgive him, heaven. Yeah. I mean, like, I was just going by the more, oh, Annabella thought that Giovanni was going to be, you know, a good brother to her, but she was betrayed. <sighs> God damn it. Just, there are too many plays where women are killed because men don't, just 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 men being men and it's it's very disappointing it's it's a time period so it can't be helped i guess but still i just wish it was one play one play oh never mind it's gonna come and its name is hamlet it's um hamlet oh, oh but she doesn't live happily ever after she goes mad no did you but like anyway. but didn't you like medea where it's a lady being a real girl boss and killing her children. Does she have to kill her kids? Yes, she the does, other... Sophie. You can't yeah. have it all, Sophie. But I want it all. Anyway. We, we've uh, talked for 20 minutes about this. Shall we just skip to the final lines of this? The famous title drop. At the end of Superman, this really was Superman 4, A Quest for Peace. I was so offended by the title drop. <laughs> it's uh, the, so the Cardinal, just to go a bit before that, so the Cardinal has come in, he sees carnage everywhere, he sees Vasquez there, and Vasquez explains everything that's happened, and the Cardinal says, okay, you're Spanish, I won't kill you, I'll exile you. And so Vasquez is now exiled, and the cardinal says, take up these slaughtered bodies and see them buried. And all the gold and jewels, or whatsoever, confiscate by the canons of the church, we seize upon to the Pope's proper use. So already we see that he sees carnage, and his first thought is, let's take all this stuff and put it into the church coffers. So already, anything he says after this point, you get the sense that, oh, this is just uh, those greedy Catholics, those greedy papists. And then the final line, the final lines of the play are the Cardinal saying, we shall have time to talk at large of all. 
but never yet incest and murder have so strangely met of one so young, so rich in nature's store, who could not say, tis pity she's a whore. What an incredible line. What John Ford, sir. That was Tis Pity She's a Whore. Tis Pity She's a Whore. Does it live up to its title, Sophie? <laughs> uh, no, not really. Because she was a good, chaste girl. She remained faithful to her brother. Ah, you know, you just have to, I mean, like, different standards, but I feel like you need to have at least, like, three partners in a single play to be considered a six-positive person. Ah, oh, she should have gotten with Berghetto. Maybe. This is, like, I don't know, like, uh... It's, it's such a weird title. It's genuinely such a baffling title considering what the content of this play is. Because tis a pity she's a whore. As I keep saying, it sounds like a bad comedy. It sounds like a satirical comedy um, about a lady that just can't settle down with one dude um, because like there's three or four, four men who have each good parts and bad parts, and she just is trying to shop around, see which one would make the the best husband. And is this uh, the prequel to Mamma Mia? Probably, yes, I think so, actually. Um, and um, and then she finally decides, actually, no, I'm just gonna go along and be a nun and have um have boinky times with other nuns because that that's the easiest thing to do. And look, Sophie, I do believe that uh, our fan fiction is becoming more and more concrete. <laughs> but yeah, because, but yeah, and then she's like, oh, well, like she could have made a great duchess, she could have made a great wife, but tis pity she was a whore. And that's the end. Uh, da, 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 that's the end of the story. Um, but no, it's a tragedy that's so deeply dark with like an incredible amount of unnecessary subplots of murder and buggery um that just makes just makes me wonder why this title the title and the and the contents do not mesh well together at all and the I only would... reason it meshes at all is because of the cardinal at the very end using his stupid soliloquy i would <laughs> the way we usually end these episodes is by asking what is one thing you did not like about this play but i do think sophie that you, you've just said it. Yes? Yes, you, you've said exactly what you didn't like. It's the title. You don't like the title. <laughs> you were expecting a fun-loving romp. Yes. And what I didn't like about this play was, I'd say, I agree with the writer of the Encyclopedia Britannica. This play is a bit marred by bad comedy. Bergetto is one of those comedy characters that the entire joke is that he's stupid. He's not stupid like a regular person is stupid. He's just that non-existent kind of stupidness, which doesn't really work. Yeah. But, Sophie, what's one thing you did like about this? 
What did I like? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, oh, I liked that it was, you know, snappy. It was all the, it, it was intricate in its subplots, but they weren't extraneous. They were technically useful to the plot. Uh, Richard Detto, I feel like he was a little bit superfluous, but it, like in context with him, it makes useful sense in that he was the bad doctor that was like, oh no, he, she ate melons. She's fine. She was just feeling just something disagreed with her. She's not pregnant or anything. Um, so having a dumb, a single dumb doctor to instigate the misunderstanding was useful. But aside from that, he wasn't very useful. So eh, it's very well structured. It's very snappy. Um, not very quotable, but it's entertaining. What did I like about this play? I, uh, I've read this play multiple times. Usually the reason I've read these kinds of plays multiple times is because of some book club commitment or some university commitment or various things where I am obligated to read it again and again. And I'd say that, look, I probably wouldn't, it's probably going to be a while before I read this again, but this is something that is actually a pleasure to read. John Ford is someone who is a very relatively modern plotter and very straightforward language. He, This is perhaps one of the most purely entertaining of the Renaissance dramas. Is that damning with faint praise? Or, but, and also, yes, it is, and as I mentioned before, it is exact, you hear the phrase decadent Renaissance tragedy. This is the best version of that. There are other ones that try. Revenge's tragedy, that tries. But maybe some of Shakespeare's later, Titus Andronicus, that tries. This one, it is decadent Renaissance tragedy. Exactly the best, best version of that. Yeah. The bandit scene was pretty great. <laughs> it, it does feel like, yeah, it is, that is genuinely, it feels incredibly modern. It's the, the inherent surrealness of violence. It's like, you don't, well, we, we weren't being violent, and now there's people being violent. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no ah uh, it had comedic moments but i wish it had been like kind of comedic the whole time the whole time all right that was tis british is a whore what are we doing next well we're doing two things next not in the same episode but just so you know listener we're doing in the next episode five sonnets five sonnets either this will take us a very short amount of time or it will take us five hours sonnets are like that and then after that, Richard II. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pal. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.